Hi, I'm David Rothkopf, the CEO of the DSR Network and host of the Deep State Radio podcast. Here at DSR, we have always believed that in a world as complex, fast-moving, and full of risks as ours, we all need access to the best minds. That is why we have created the leading network for expert podcasts on the issues of the day you care about. We go in-depth on politics, the law, national security, foreign policy, intelligence, defense, climate, and new technologies with regular and special guests that are the leading voices in their fields. We also offer daily updates on global news, our DSR Daily, and on a key story of the day through our partnership with the New Republic. That is why over a million times a month, people like you choose to spend time with our hosts and guests. Membership is what supports this, and members get special benefits, including bonus content in virtually all of our podcasts. It's a big deal, and it's a good deal. Our monthly membership price is going to go up for the first time in our history on March 1st. So now is the time you can lock in our founder's rate of just $5 a month. To do so, go to the dsrnetwork.com and click on membership. It's that easy, but don't delay. Today's rates will only be available for a few more weeks. Join us, support us. Go to the dsrnetwork.com right now. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10. 28-2-23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of We're All Gonna Die Radio, the show in which we look at defense issues and the technology that uh, enables them, including nuclear and other forms of technologies. Uh, I'm David Rothkopf. I'm your unofficial and sometimes uh, fifth wheel on the show. Uh, the real co-hosts of the show are the uh, wonderful Heather Williams, who's the director for the Project on Nuclear Issues and a senior fellow at the International Security Program at CSIS. How are you doing today, Heather? I'm I'm great, David. You're never a fifth wheel. Well, thank you. You're very nice to say that, but I know the truth. And and you know why I know the truth? Because John Wolfsell tells the truth. Uh, he's the director of global risk at the Federation of American Scientists and member of the Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. How are you today, John? Uh, I'm good, David. Always happy to speak truth to power, and you're the power. Yeah, that's I'm, I'm loving this so far. Uh, we have two expert guests with us. One is Barbara Slavin. She is a distinguished fellow at the Stimson Center and a lecturer in international affairs at George Washington University. How are you doing today, Barbara? I'm doing very well. Pleasure to be invited back. Thank you. Uh, well, it'll happen many times. And... Robin Wright, who's a contributing writer and columnist for The New Yorker and a joint fellow at the U.S. Institute of Peace and the Woodrow Wilson Center. How are you today, Robin? Great to be with you. Thank you so much. So we want to look at 
the issues that pertain to Iran. And usually when we are talking on this show about issues like that, we're talking about nuclear weapons, nuclear threats, sometimes cyber threats, things like that. Um, But of course, there is a context for that. And right now, the relations between the United States and some of our allies and Iran are uh, fraught. They're fraught because Iran is backing Hamas. They're fraught because Iran is backing the Houthi rebels that are attacking international shipping on the Red Sea. They're fraught because Iran um, backs uh, militias uh, throughout the region, including um, uh, allegedly one that launched an attack, a drone attack on Tower 22, a U.S. installation on the Jordanian-Syrian border. Uh, and that drone uh, hit a bunker in which a number of U.S. soldiers were sleeping, three were killed, 40 were injured, and the United States has now said uh, that it is going to respond. Um, uh, That response could take place at any moment. It may, in fact, have taken place prior to your listening to this podcast. So we're not going to get into the details of the response, but the first step is to sketch out where we think the relationship between the U.S. and our allies and Iran is right now. How fraught is it? Let me start with you, Robin. Well, I think the, United, the tensions between the United States and Iran have never been greater. I think the threats across the region have probably never been higher. Uh, one of the things we're seeing is the way that the war in Gaza has in many ways converged the 10 different conflicts across the region into one big war. Uh, there's a common cause uh, and a common point of division between Iran and its axis of resistance, a network of militias in Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, and Yemen, and the United States and its allies uh, in countries like Israel, Jordan, and Saudi Arabia. Uh, the dangers of uh, people have been talking about the dangers of escalation, but I actually think we've crossed that threshold. And I think the, there is such momentum right now, that even if there were an end of the war in Gaza tomorrow, that there is such tension and friction um, that it would be hard to contain all the forces that are now focused on getting the United States out of the Middle East altogether um, in in helping the Palestinians or, um, uh, you know, targeting Israel, that, that we're we're in for a, a tough year. Uh, Barbara, I noticed you nodding there. What, what, what's your view? Yeah, I largely agree with Robin. Uh, I mean, it's amazing we've gotten this far into the Gaza war without uh, without this kind of thing happening earlier. Uh, I think there's been a tremendous effort on the part of the United States uh, and Iran and Iran-backed groups, with the exception of the Houthis, who are pretty much on their own planet. Um, to uh, calibrate the tits for tats such that they did not explode into a wider conflagration. I think there's still an effort being made. You notice how quickly the Iranians denied any responsibility for the attack that killed the Americans. You notice that that the group that has been accused, uh, Qatayb Hezbollah, uh, came out and said, we're not going to hit Americans anymore. And so on. So there's been a lot of backpedaling. U.S. has also telegraphed in advance that it's going to hit a variety of targets, that it's going to proceed over uh, several weeks and so on. All of this is an effort somehow to to contain the conflict. 
Uh, but but I agree with Robin. I mean, we've already had uh, disastrous uh, occurrences, such as the death of the Americans. The Houthis don't seem to listen to anybody, and they're enjoying their moment in the sun. Uh, so it, it could indeed get, get worse before it gets better. Um, that said, I think that ending, ceasing, pausing, whatever verb you want to use, the war in Gaza, would go a long way toward uh, defanging some of this and enable de-escalation to take place, uh, even if it's not perfect. Yeah, I wrote a column to that effect, and Barbara immediately sent me the column she had written to that effect prior <laughs> to my writing the column to that effect. So um, uh, credit credit where, where that is due. Heather, over to you. Yeah, Robin, um, if I could come back to you, and maybe we can just zoom out a little bit, and if you could reflect on what got us to this point. Uh, and your first comment really struck me that this is the worst that it's ever been. And I'm just thinking, of, you know, I'm thinking about the killing of Soleimani and those eight really tense days back in 2020, uh, Iran's growing nuclear program. And so there's certainly um, been some flashpoints in the past, unfortunately. Um, but could you just uh, maybe zoom out and bring us up to where we are today and what you think makes this time more dangerous than in the past? Well, the danger is in part the kind of amalgamation of all the points of tension we've that have played out between Iran and the United States since the revolution in 1960, 1979, which was as much about uh, forcing the United States out of the Middle East as uh, ousting the monarchy. And this has played out. Remember, the nation was traumatized by the taking of 52 Americans at the U.S. Embassy uh, when the yellow ribbon became a symbol as profound as baseball and apple pie for many Americans. And again, this is where you look at the string of incidents that have played out over the years. I lived in Lebanon when um, the embryo of Hezbollah attacked uh, two American embassies and the Marine Peacekeeper Barracks, which was the largest single loss of U.S. military life in a single incident since Iwo Jima in World War II. So it's not just, you know, was any single incident before this more tense than what we're facing now? It is the fact we've gone through all of this. And over the, the 45 years, there has been a deepening fear. Both sides, ironically, fear each other. The, the Iranians are very worried, as aggressive as they are, they're very worried about the mightier the United States is. And um, and the United States is deeply fearful because Iran has gone out and created its own mini NATO across the Middle East with its network of militias that now are not only the most powerful uh, forces or power, most powerful alliance in the Middle East, they're one of the most powerful alliances in the world. And these are all non-state actors. Um, when we created NATO, we went out and we we tapped into cultures and societies and governments that wanted to ally with us. The Iranians went out quite imaginatively and created these militias that now have not only a lot of arms, but they are political parties that are big players in the governments in all of those countries. So, you know, it's, I'm not comparing the moment, this, this moment, uh, in terms of other moments of tension. It's the, it's the history. And we're getting to that point again that, you know, there's a lot of talk in Washington about, well, it's time to go after Iran itself, which I have to say, I think would be far more dangerous than Iraq and 
Afghanistan wars put together. I mean, I think that those who call for war as the way out of this uh, and regime change are dreaming. I mean, whatever you feel about the regime, um, the prospects of doing it are very difficult. Yeah. Can I can I add a little bit uh, there? I mean, the, the context is also that Iran has been a genius in terms of uh, exploiting opportunities presented by U.S. stupidity, such as the invasion of Iraq, which was what really opened up uh, Iraq to Iranian influence and helped create the so-called Shia crescent through Syria and in, into Lebanon. And Iran also finds... Uh, uh, unhappy people in various pockets of the Middle East with legitimate grievances and offers its help. So that might be downtrodden Shia in Lebanon or in Iraq uh, or in Yemen or the Palestinian cause, which Iran has wrapped itself in literally um, since the revolution. Even the Shah of Iran had sympathies for the Palestinians and supported them to some extent. Uh, but it is the failure of the international community to resolve the Israel-Palestine conflict that has given Iran this great opening with Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and so on. And, you know, so until you address root causes, you cannot address uh, the, the symptoms of these causes. Uh, and the militias are, you know, they wouldn't exist if there weren't grievances in all of these places. Let me um, let me make a controversial point in that I, I when I agree with what I've heard and for all of the rhetoric and all of the cause issues, the the group that's really not getting helped or being hurt the most is, of course, in my view, the Palestinian people. So for all the rhetoric and for all the drones and bombs and military action, um, you know, the, you still continue to have a, a tremendous impacts on the uh, average men and women in Palestine or the Palestinian people um, that sort of belies the rhetoric, right? It's sort of what's behind it. And I think understanding that. Uh, for me, I think the most interesting question I have for both Robin and, and Barbara is, uh, you know, Robin, you mentioned NATO. Uh, and the United States has learned that while we are the leader in NATO, it's not always possible to get our allies to do what we want. Um, it's now clear that even though uh, Israel is uh, entirely dependent on American military and economic support, um, it is very hard to get BB to do both the right thing and what is in our interests. But it strikes me that Iran is also struggling with that problem. I mean, you both have mentioned the Houthis being on another planet, I think Barbara said. I mean, what is Iran finding that even if it wants to pull back, having started and lit these fires, what is its ability to actually control these things? Because I think that gets to the point of, okay, even if you even if the hawks do get what they want and they are able to start a war with Iran, it's not like that necessarily solves any of these problems, let alone opening a giant can of worms. So, uh, Robin, let me ask you to build onto that and then Barbara as well. Yeah, well, one of the things we failed to kind of factor in is how long these militias have been around now. Hezbollah was formed more than 40 years ago, and it is now not only well-armed with more than 150,000 rockets or missiles pointed all at Israel, but it has been battle-tested. It joined the, the war in Syria to prop up the government of President Assad. Uh, it has fought its own war with Israel in 2006. That led to the you know, first time that Israel ended a war with, um, you know, not looking as strong as it had before. And Hezbollah is better armed, better trained today than it was back then. Uh, the same is true of 
uh, the Houthis, who've been around since the 1990s, merged as a tribal uh, religious and cultural revival movement, and increasingly was embroiled in a civil war since 2014 that became a regional war in 2015 with the Saudis, and now is uh, astonishingly attacking uh, commerce in the Red Sea, through which 30% of the world's ships um, sail on their way to the Suez Canal. And Iran has unleashed these forces in ways that it doesn't always control. Remember, they share a strategic goal of eliminating Israel, but they all have their own domestic agendas. They all have their own regional agendas. And Iran is also, even though we talk about many of these militias being Shiite, Iran is Persian, and most of the uh, most of its allies are in the Arab world, and there is a long-standing hostility, suspicion uh, built in that goes back millennia. So again, you know, this is where I'm not sure the Iranians, especially since the death of General Soleimani at the hands of the United States in 2020, has the ability to rein them all in. It can direct them. It can, you know, say we're not going to provide you the arms that you need if it wanted to, to restrain them. But it also kind of is um, caught up in, uh, as it comes under threat, wanting to have its allies still being armed. So in case it's attacked, they have something that they can help. So we're in this kind of quagmire of, you know, um, who's going to step back first? Who's going to say, okay, we want to stop this. And that's what I worry about. You know, after the, the attack, on Soleimani, the Iranians responded with um, a dozen uh, cruise, uh, whether ballistic or cruise missiles, uh, anyway, with thousand pound warheads. And there were over 100 Americans injured with traumatic brain injuries. Uh, and at that point, the United States and Iran sent messages to each other through diplomatic channels saying, enough, you know, uh, we, we don't want it to go any further. I think there's that sense now. We know that it's happened recently if not necessarily since the attack on Jordan, but can they pull them all back in? And that's where I talk about momentum. Barbara, any, your thoughts on how much control Iran actually has over the militias and what? You know, I mean, you know, again, just not to do whataboutism, but we give $4 billion a year to Israel and BB, you know, uh, flips us the bird with great regularity. So, you know, clients, don't always stay clients. Um, I think there have been a lot of messages sent back and forth. I think we're going to see a very sort of interesting American retaliation, which, which as I say, has been well telegraphed in advance. Iran has removed all its senior generals from Syria, and, and they're all hiding somewhere, I'm sure. Uh, I would expect a lot of arms depots to be blown up, a lot of bases and infrastructure to be destroyed, but hopefully not that many human beings. So I think that these messages are being sent. Meanwhile, we have ceasefire talks proceeding, trying to get a, a, a long ceasefire, which will enable Israeli hostages to come out uh, and some Palestinian prisoners to be released and urgently needed uh, humanitarian assistance to get into Gaza, where half a million pe people are in danger of starving to death. Um, so we should focus on that. That's really the most urgent issue, as you mentioned, really, that's that's the humanitarian disaster that we're facing. I think we'll get through this. There was also a report that the Iranians have apparently slowed down their accumulation of 60% enriched uranium again, after having sped it up 
uh, following October 7th. So, you know, messages, signals are being sent that we, we need to cool it. One other thing in that is how vulnerable Iran is internally. Um, the regime has never been so unpopular. It's been through wave after wave of protests. After those Americans died in Jordan, the rial sunk to 600,000 rials to the dollar. Um, when I started going to Iran in the 90s, it was 10,000 to the dollar. I think when Robin was there, it was 70 to the dollar. I mean, this is insane. The, the Iranian people cannot take a war with the United States, and Ayatollah Khamenei and company know that. If I can jump in um, with um, a follow-up question for Barbara, actually. Barbara, you've written some great pieces about the potential role for China in the region as kind of a my word, not yours, mediator, or potentially helping to avoid conflict, manage crises. Um, you've also um, suggested India might be able to play a role there. Do you see either of them having potential to get involved and try to de-escalate things in the current crisis um, or going forward as well? Yeah, Jake Sullivan, our national security advisor, spoke to Wang Yi, the foreign minister of China and Thailand recently, and asked China to ask Iran to, to tell the Houthis to cool it. Um, uh, I don't know how much influence anybody has over the Houthis. I mean, even China can't tell the Houthis to stop. Uh, but China does have a lot of influence with Iran. And of course, a lot of influence with Saudi Arabia, UAE. It is the biggest uh, commercial economic partner of all those countries. Uh, so I think China is already trying to play a role in the Red Sea. And I think China should be brought into Arab-Israeli, uh, you know, Palestinian-Israeli peace uh, talks, if we ever get them. Um, you know, we have something called the Quartet. China should be part of that. It's frankly more important than Russia now. I think in terms of, of potentially uh, mediating peace, it helped finalize an agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia back last spring. Um, so this is China's chance to show that it really is a responsible stakeholder and that it believes in international law and UN resolutions and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not sure China quite has the, the bandwidth. Right now they're enjoying watching the United States suffer uh, a loss of reputation and be isolated because of its support for Israel. So they're probably going to want to let the U.S. twist in the wind a little bit longer. Um, but if there is ever a, res a resumption of talks on a two-state solution, I think China should be there. Yeah, by the way, I think China thinks they should be there as well. And they've made some comments on this uh, recently, and they don't hesitate to weigh in. China's expectation is also that when there is a, a peace negotiation in Ukraine, they will be at the table as well. And I think that is... Hey, if they can do good, let them do it. You well, know, if they're they, just going to issue they, foreign ministry statements, then no thank you. Yeah, well, they're going to... Clearly, they're they're trying to do that. Robin, let me ask you a question, um, and uh, I'll ask it to you and and Barbara, and then John and Heather. You may want to comment on it as well as ask your own questions. But you know, the centerpiece of Obama era policy towards Iran was the Iran nuclear deal. Um, the centerpiece of Trump era policy, to the extent that it was coherent, was to get out of the nuclear deal. Um, uh, Prior to October seventh, all the discussions regarding Iran, you know the you know sort of first tier discussions in in kind of the media, had to do with is Iran gaining or you know on 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 producing a nuclear weapon? Where are they since they've exited the nuclear deal? How dangerous is that? 
uh, Barbara just mentioned dialing it back a little bit. You know, the you know reports that that may be happening. What's your sense of where we stand on uh, Iran's nuclear capability right now, and how relevant is that to this broader discussion? Well, John's the real expert on this, but I think you know, in the aftermath of the implementation of the deal in 2016, Ir- Iran was down to a limit of enriching uranium to 3.67%. Today, it's gone as high as 60% and at one point above 80%. And it takes roughly 90% uh, enriched uranium to fuel um, a bomb, which is one one of only three steps to to actually make a weapon. Uh, But the the intelligence estimates by both US experts and and, uh, uh, and Israeli intelligence is, is that Iran is capable, if it makes the political decision, it's a big caveat, of making a bomb, a crude weapon, within weeks. And so even if Iran has gone back, rolled back a little bit recently, I think we have to deal with the reality of where it is today. It has capabilities, a stockpile, a level of enrichment that far exceeds the limits of the Iran nuclear deal. And I think history will look back on President Trump's decision to walk away from it, to abandon it, even as the five other world powers stuck to it as one of the greatest mistakes in foreign policy, uh, because that was to be the framework, the beginning of a moment to try to better relations, uh, to move on to other issues that divide the two countries, regional relations, support for militant groups, human rights abuses, and we missed the opportunity on both the big question of weaponry as well as all the uh, other flashpoints we have with Iran. It's gotten to the point where we define U.S. administrations by what is their big mistake in the Middle East. You know, whether it's the Iraq war or the no red lines in Syria or, you know, pulling out of this. And now this administration, I think, may be dealing with, you know, embracing BB too close. But Barbara, same question. Yeah, it, it was the dumbest thing uh, that I've seen in 40 years of covering U.S. foreign policy. I mean, uh, we all know how hard it is to get any kind of arms control agreement. And the JCPOA actually came out of 12 years of talks that started with Europeans talking to Iran because the Bush administration wouldn't talk to Iran unless it stopped its enrichment, et cetera. Um, and, you know, after all that work, hundreds of people uh, slaving on this agreement uh, over all this time, you know, Trump walks away. Um, it, it's just, it, and it undercut, I think the U.S. invasion of Iraq and the walking away from the JCPOA have helped to so undermine U.S. standing in the world uh, that even though we remain the preeminent economic power, you know, when we ever, whenever we talk about a, a rules-based international order, people in many countries just laugh at us because we don't we don't follow our own rules, uh, and we have such volatility now between administrations uh, that if one administration resolves some issue or seems to resolve some issue, you have absolutely no confidence that that will continue into the next administration, particularly if there's a change. In political party in the White House, and and this has done grave, grave damage to our standing, uh, our standing around the world. Can I add quickly to that? Um, the one thing that was so striking about the nuclear deal is that it did involve countries. The only issue in which they agreed 
uh, the major powers uh, in 2013 to 2015 who were otherwise at, w- at war or had different opinions. It's the only issue in which the major powers agreed, the only diplomatic initiative they agreed on. You had in 2014, Russia was invading uh, Ukraine, and yet they stuck to the deal and the diplomacy. And, you know, I don't share um, Barbara's optimism about the role of China. I think that Xi Jinping is much stronger today and uh, doesn't have an interest in doing much with the United States, except perhaps trade. Uh, and that the idea of bringing the world's six major powers back together on Iran uh, is probably impossible now. And, and that has a rippling effect on all issues that divide the world on different flashpoints. Well, I'd love to get John and Heather's take on this, but this is the point in the show where we stop and we say thanks to everybody who's not a member for joining us. Um, and if you want to hear the rest of the podcast, you need to be a member. You go to the dsrnetwork.com, you click on membership, and uh, it's $5 a month, which it will be only for a few more weeks. So this is a really good time to go in. Uh, we have many more podcasts than we used to do, including a new daily podcast with the New Republic called The Daily Blast with uh, Greg Sargent each and every day. Uh, so a lot more benefit if you do it. Uh, but for now, if you're not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by.